There's a quote there at the top of your quotes and notes page in your bulletin I want to read to you. It's from Christopher Wright's book, The Mission of God. He says, To love your neighbor as yourself is not just the second great commandment in the law, it is the essential implication of our common createdness. That's an insightful remark Mr. Wright is making there. It begs a question. Who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Now, some of you may recognize that question. That's the very question that was asked to Jesus, and that then caused him to tell a story that's oftentimes referred to as the parable of the Good Samaritan. And in the course of that story, what he helps us to understand, among other things, regarding the answer to that question, who is my neighbor? My neighbor is the person in need. My neighbor is the person in need, no matter who they are, no matter how hard they are to love. No matter who they are, no matter how hard they are to love, that is my neighbor. And that's really the issue before us here this morning. How, what does it look like? How are, can we best love our neighbor, the person in need, whoever that may be, however hard it is to love them? How can I best love the other, this other person, how can I best love them? The people, folks on the left have a particular answer to that question. Folks on the right have a particular answer to that question. The folks on the left trend in this direction. The best way to love someone in need is through big government and social reform. Over here on the right, the answer trends in this direction, big business and economic growth. Both of those answers fall woefully short of getting to the real solution and to the true answer in its depth as to what it means to love a person in need. Our neighbor, no matter who they are, no matter how hard they may be to love. In fact, the gospel alone gives us that answer. I ask you to turn with me to Matthew's gospel in particular. This is the first book in the New Testament, the first of our four gospels that we have been given. Matthew chapter 15. We're going to read verses 29 through 39, Matthew 15, verses 29 to 39, pressing on in this extended series through the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to come right up to the very end of chapter 15 and stop there, picking up the plan is 16 next week. But Matthew 15, verses 29 to 39, hear now the word of God. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee, and he went up on the mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them, so that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And they glorified the God of Israel. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, Where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven, and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat 
and went to the region of Magadan. Can we pray for a minute? Lord, you have described your word as being perfect, a law that is able to revive the soul. Would you do that? Uh, yours is a sure testimony that makes wise the simple. Would you do that? Yours are right precepts that rejoice the heart. Would you do that? Yours are pure commandments that enlighten the eyes. Would you do that? Oh, Jesus, through the ages, you have spoken through pagan kings and wayward prophets, and even in one case, a, prophet, a prophet's donkey. And we're asking that you would speak through me. <laughs> um, and through the ages, you have spoken to many people, in many places, in many positions, and in many um, conditions, heart conditions, earthly, fleshly conditions. Um, and no doubt there are no few such here this morning, self-included. Uh, some of us have come in ready, prepared. Some of us are just dragging in, and not just because we lost an hour of sleep. Um, we're asking for your mercy, we pray. Give us, oh, we say this so often, ears with which to hear. Truly, ears with which to hear. Uh, for our hearts are more needy than we know. We pray in your name. Amen. Okay, when there's more to be seen, it's good to be able to see it. Think about that for a minute. When there's more to be seen, it's good to be able to see it. Now, of course, that would stand to reason when you're talking about hidden enemies and camouflage. That's not actually the direction I'm going. Uh, you could, but certainly we could also think in terms of exploration and scientific discovery. So the Hubble telescope, no doubt most of us have heard of that. It's the most well-known of the orbiting space telescopes up there right now. The Hubble telescope was deployed in 1990 by the Space Shuttle Discovery and once necessary adjustments and repairs were made, it began to send back to Earth some of the most stunning images that you could imagine. I'm sure some of us have, have seen some of these. And, uh, I mean, through that, there were, there were planets, moons, stars, whole solar systems, whole galaxies that we didn't even know were there. that has revolutionized, in some ways, important ways, the study of astronomy and astrophysics. When there's uh, more to be seen, when there's more to be seen, it's good to be able to see it. How much more so with Jesus? How much more so with Jesus? His nature, his character in particular, his love. When there's more to be seen, how good it is to be able to see it. And there is so much about his love that because of the state of our hearts and our spiritual eyes, if you will, there is so much that distorts and hides and obscures and shrinks Jesus and his love in our eyes, in our, in our eyes, subjectively, in our, in our eyes. Uh, there is so much more to the love of Jesus than we know. 
There's so, so much more to the love of Jesus than we know. We, we need to let that reality expand our own love towards others. So let's say that again. It's a very simple point. There's so much more to the love of Jesus than we know. We need to let that reality expand our love towards others. Now, in this passage here, in the course of the, uh, this account here of these miracles on display there, I'm going to talk about the dynamics and a lot of different details in this. We see Jesus' love lit a blaze. It's burning hot and burning bright. And, and we're going to unpack that, look at this together in three ways, and it's there in your outline, these three points, and it's sort of moving progressively, helping us to see some things. First, the, just the fact of these miracles and secondly, uh, the, the repetition, I'll just call it that, the repetition of these miracles. Then thirdly and finally, getting into the lesson of the miracles themselves. And I said progressively, moving one, two, three, because we have to begin by trying to, to weed the garden, clear the field of some stones, some stumbling blocks, some unnecessary uh, confusion points that we need to, to deal with before we can really get into the, the, the lessons, the meat of what is here. So let me just start with this. The fact of such Miracles. Can such things even happen? Is, that, is it even reasonable to believe what Matthew is describing here for us? So I want to talk about just for a moment the possibility of these events that he is describing here. The, the assumptions that we bring to the text drive, form, shape the way we hear, understand, and read the text, right? The assumptions, our preconceptions that we come to the text drive and shape what we carry away from the text. And sadly, many come to a passage like this, to a text like this, and because they're coming with what I'll call a naturalistic worldview or preconception, that is to say, such things can't happen, that therein means they did not happen. I don't care what you read, I don't care what you tell me, I know ahead of time they can't happen, so therefore they did not happen, and any book written by any author that says they did is either deluded or lying. So this kind of matters what your assumptions are when you come to the text. Okay? It matters a lot. Now a fair assessment of such assumptions, was uh, assessment is made by J.I. Packer, in a lot of other things that I could read to you at this point that he's written on the score, but I'm just going to read one paragraph from his little book, Concise Theology. I think I quoted from that a week or two ago. Again, I'd commend that to you. It's in a chapter on miracles. This is what he said. The rejection of miracles by yesterday's scientists sprang not from science, but from the dogma of a universe of absolute uniformity that scientists brought to their scientific work. The assumptions. There is nothing irrational about believing that God who made the world can still intrude creatively into it. Christians should recognize that it is not faith in the biblical miracles and in God's ability to work miracles today, should he so wish, but doubt about these things. That is unreasonable. The point being we should not rule these things out. We should not rule these things out. That's simply too precarious a position to take. And frankly, a bit arrogant because it is assuming you really do know more. Really do know more, and exhaustively so. Okay, so that's the possibility. I just want to touch on that, press on that, really. And okay, so can they happen? Is it possible? Why do they happen? 
Why do they happen? The Bible tells us and records uh, miracles for this reason and helps us to understand why they're taking place in the way that they do. The Bible describes such miracles as being extraordinary events, sometimes referred to as wonders, meaning to cultivate in us a, a growing awareness of God's presence and power in the world as, as uh, wonders, also as mighty works that simply cannot be explained away by natural phenomenon or coincidence. But not just that, not just extraordinary events, mighty works, wonders, but also signs, significant events. That is to say, pointing to something beyond themselves. At, at times, authenticating the credibility and respectability of the messenger, the one who's conveying a, a particular message. Or, uh, the, a demonstration of God's very power and compassion and love and care for his people, the benefactors of, of the miracle, if that's what's going on. In Jesus' case, especially with his miracles, his miracles are a sign pointing to the breaking in of his kingdom into this present world, and they serve also as a foretaste of what is yet to come. Now keep that in mind. Keep that in mind as we're thinking about these miracles that we're reading of here in Matthew chapter, chapter 15. This is a sign. This is a sign. It's not just a, a, a trick, a magic parlor trick. Oh, look, this is cool. This is something intentional. It's quite purposeful on Jesus' part, which then gets me into the second point, the repetition of these miracles. So uh, can they happen argue yes, absolutely. Why though? Why? And particularly why these miracles? Why, why are they happening? Why is Matthew regarding, uh, bothering rather, bothering to even record it for us? A reasonable question could be asked. Because I'll just admit, and I don't know how many of you would agree with this, but I'll just be honest with you. As I was coming to this passage, there was this little niggling voice in the back of my head that was saying something along the lines of, what's the point of this text? You've read this before. In, in essence, right? Let's explain what I mean by that. Uh, let's go back and read verses 29 to 31. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. Stop. Okay. If there was a map up on the screen, I would show you, because you need to understand this is a critical point, where all this is happening. Last week, the, the healing of the Canaanite woman's daughter that was in the region of Tyre and Sidon. Remember we talked about Sea of Galilee, predominantly... Um, Jewish region where Jesus is performing most, well, carrying out most of his ministry, they move northwest to the uh, Tyre and Sidon region. It's on the shore of the Mediterranean Sea, predominantly Gentile area. That's where this is taking place. Last week, last week. Now they're moving back southeast. You can imagine the Sea of Galilee skirting Capernaum to the north and moving clockwise around the Sea of Galilee now to the southeast corner of the Sea of Galilee, which, by the way, again, is a predominantly Gentile region. I cannot emphasize that point enough. This is not a predominantly Jewish region, but a predominantly Gentile region. Okay? Outside of the scope it would seem, according to the Jewish people of the covenant. Why are you there? What's the point, Jesus? Okay, that's where this thing plays. Okay, I rudely interrupted myself. Back to verse 30. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, 
the mute, and many others, and they put them at his feet, and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered, when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Okay, given what we said earlier in regarding the possibility and the fact of these miracles, this is not this is maybe surprising to us to read this, but it's not utterly shocking. These sorts of things are unusual, but they're not out of place given that they fit the pattern of what we've seen time and again in Jesus' ministry. That is, where he goes, the people and their problems follow. And then things tend to happen because of how his heart goes out to the people and their struggles. Okay, but that then gets us into verses 32 to 39. And I want to read that again because this is really quite striking and is really worth impressing upon us. Then Jesus called his disciples. So right in the midst of all this, not a next day, but next moment. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, Where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven, and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied, and they broke Excuse me, they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magan. Okay. You read a text like that, and if you've been reading through Matthew and paying attention, a question can come into your mind. Now back to that nagging little voice that was in the back of my head a few days ago. Haven't we seen this before? Just in the last chapter, chapter 14, what's going on here? What's the point? I mean, I know that was 5,000 men in addition, besides the women and the children. And this, but this is another 4,000, and it's like it's less people, and it's practically the same thing, and it seems so anticlimactic, so what's the point? It's a reasonable question. If you're asking that, it's a reasonable question. Now, sadly, that reasonable question through the years is answered with a really unreasonable answer. The answer from some scholars goes like this. What's the point? There is no point. Matthew was confused. By the time of Matthew's writing, there's several different varying ideas as, and, and testimonies and accounts of, of one event. Matthew really didn't know which was which, and so he spliced them both in there pretending that they were two. So you see, once again, we can't trust Matthew or the Gospels at all. They're not reliable. So goes the answer. Bad answer. Bad answer. It's completely wrong. It's absolutely, completely wrong. This is not, this, we're not dealing with uh, two accounts of the same event. These are two separate accounts of two separate but similar events. The differences between them, though, are so striking and so vital, it's completely different lessons that we learn, if we have but ears to hear. For instance, let me just walk you through some of the differences that are important to recognize here. I've already mentioned the size of the crowd, 5,000 it was earlier, now it's 4,000. 
other details of numbers, different numbers of loaves and fish and the amount left over. Then you've got when this took place, the season of the year. If you go back and read in Matthew 14, mention is made of them sitting on the grass, clearly implying it's springtime. Now it's the ground, no grass, implying the summer's heat has withered that. Different season, different area. I've already talked about that. I want to stress it again. Before it was in a Jew, excuse me, Jewish, predominantly Jewish area. Now it's in a predominantly Gentile area called the Decapolis, that southeast region. If you look at the map uh, around the Sea of Galilee, uh, this is huge. You see, get a hint of that, of the Gentile prominence of the, of the, or predominance of the crowd just in their response to the miracles. You see it in verse 31. And they glorified the God of Israel. That would make no sense for Matthew to describe their response that way if they were Jewish people, but they're not. They're predominantly Gentile, and they're amazed at what the God of Israel is doing in their midst. In their midst. So you see, this is not, again, this is not two different accounts of the same event. This is two different accounts of different events, and these two different events drive two completely different lessons. In the feeding of the 5,000, the main lesson was our absolute dependency upon the Lord. That's Matthew 14. Matthew 15. Not that that goes away, but Matthew 15. It's the Lord's compassion and love for all peoples, all cultures, all nations. It is not hemmed in and boxed in just for the Jew. It began with the Jewish nation, but it's meant to explode from there to all peoples, all nations, to the other. To the other. You get that sense just in the way Jesus, by the way, he's the one taking initiative here, which is a little different than what you see in Matthew 14. Jesus is the one taking the initiative here. Uh, and, and in addition to that, we see the way Matthew describes his, his feeling about this. I, verse 32, I have compassion on the crowd. The word, the, the, the meaning implying this deep, heartfelt yearning, ache, pain for them. Okay. I said we we're going to clear the ground. That was the clearing of the ground. That was points one and two. Just trying to get us ready for what is really the meat of what's going on, what the real lessons are of, of this text. Again, there is more to the love of Christ than we know. That's what we're seeing here. So clearly, there's so much more to the love of Christ than we know, we need to let that reality expand our own love. Or put it this way, letting, just taking a look and see how, how Jesus loves the other. The other. And letting that expand our own love for the other. Especially as we see that perhaps we just might be included in that list of other ourselves. Let's go through this. We see three things about his love. Huge, critical, oh, so vastly significant things about his love. First, his love is wide. Secondly, his love is free. And then thirdly, his love is costly. And we see that here in this passage. Now let's look at this just in turn. Beyond His love is wide. Beyond our... Um, expectations beyond our sad, truncated experience, 
we see here a vastness, a wideness to his love. Now, our love, my love, your love, our love is so narrow. It is so narrow. Our love tends to go like this. We love people like us and those who like us. You get that? Subtle distinction. Our love is limited to those who are like us and those who like us. Our love is, is hemmed in and, and narrowed by kinship and commonality, by color and culture and class and heritage and history. Our love tends to be so narrow and his is as wide as his arms. Massive point. The invitation goes out to all. This is so far, this is a love that is so far beyond what we are accustomed to and what we so sadly settle for. The wideness, the breadth of the love of Jesus that we see here on full display in Matthew 15. I know we're in the midst of March Madness. I don't have a bracket. Um, we're uh, thinking back into the last sporting thing was the Winter Games. And I was sharing this with the elders in our last session meeting, uh, just a similar illustration. Um, you know, I don't know how many of you know, the first Winter Games was in Paris in 1924. You know how many... Nations were in attendance at that first Winter Games? Sixteen. Not a lot. Pretty good start. You know, kind of modest, but it was 1924. You know, no social media. Um, and so there you go. Now, 2018, South Korea, you have 92. Huge difference. Huge difference. And why am I bringing this up? Because I think, now I didn't watch the closing ceremonies. I'll just be honest. I don't get into that stuff. But as far as the, the flags the pageantry, the nations, the cultures, the peoples that are on display in that, those kind of events and there's those weeks of competition. My friends, I mean, I'm really very serious here. That is a foretaste of heaven. That's what Psalm 87 was about that Hunter read earlier. Roger read from Revelation 7. That's what that is about. All nations, all peoples, all cultures, all class, all heritage, all history around the throne of Jesus. That's how wide his love is. But this love is not just wider than we tend to think. It is also more free than we dare to imagine. The, the freeness of his love is, is, the wideness of his love, the breadth of his love is really comforting. But it's in some ways, the freeness of his love, depending on how you think about it, is it, that's also comforting, but it can also be somewhat scary at the same time. I, I say that because, well, again, first let's contrast it with our own love. Our own love is not just narrow, it's also conditional. It's conditional. Uh, we, we will set our love upon those who are willing to think and speak and act and in this tumultuous political climate, vote the way that we do. That's who we'll love. Or in you know, an old silly adage from, from a generation or two ago, don't uh, drink or smoke or chew or go with girls who do. 
That's kind of getting back to what we talked about, the legalism issues from a few weeks ago. And the, the, our foolishness, our arrogance in adding to God's word those whom he will find to be acceptable in his sight. The height of presumption and arrogance on our part. Our, our love is, is awfully conditional. And we make up the conditions. His love is beautifully unconditional. Now, okay, hold on. I know some of you are thinking, whoa, wait a minute. But stay with me here. Yes, I know. Believe me, I know. There's an exclusiveness to his love. The only way to come to the true and living God is through his son, Jesus Christ, and his finished work upon the cross. Yes, there is an exclusiveness to his love. And in our cultural climate, that sounds very narrow and arrogant and close-minded. But I would plead with you to understand that the gospel is far more inclusive than any other worldview, any other faith, any other position, any other religion, any other way of thinking about God and what it means, how we can stand in, in his presence. Because any any can be saved. It has nothing to do with what you do. Nothing. And with every other worldview, every other religion, every other approach to the living God, it has everything to do with what you do or don't. And the checklist and how you're squared up and is, are the balances okay and all of that ridiculous, heart-rending, soul-crushing things. In that sense, the gospel is more inclusive than any other message. His love is more unconditional than any other love that we could ever hope to dream or speak of. Ours is so sadly conditional, but not the love of Jesus. His love is wide it is free, and it is costly. That's the other thing we see here, too. It's free to us, but never to him. It's free to us, but never, ever to him. Now, uh, our love, my love, your love, is, is cheap. It's just cheap. It's trinket love. Um... It's the love of the, what's the, the, the little treasures you buy at the souvenir stand. It's cheap love. Uh, our love is unwilling to be put out. Our love is unwilling to lay down our rights. Our love is uh, slow to give up our claims to what we have deluded ourselves to own. Our love is cheap. C.S. Lewis writes on this powerfully in the Screwtape Letters. And no few of you have heard me quote from the, the Screwtape Letters no few times. I plead mercy. Sorry. I just keep going back to it time and again. There's so much to, to be mined there. Those of you who aren't familiar with the Screwtape Letters, this is a fictional, a fanciful uh, collection of letters. Lewis, his idea is you've got this one senior tempter Screwtape 
He's mentoring, if you will, in a, in a demonic way, his nephew, Wormwood, in how to undermine the faith of the patient, to pull him away from the influence, the clutches of the enemy, who is the true and living God. This is, in one of the letters, this is what we read. We teach them, the, the, the humans, these hairless bipeds, we teach them not to notice the different senses of the possessive pronoun, the finely graded differences that run from my boots through my dog, my servant, my wife, my father, my master, and my country to my God. They can be taught to reduce all these senses to that of my boots, the my of ownership. Even in, in the nursery, a child can be taught to mean by my teddy bear, not the old imagined recipient of affection to whom it stands in a special relation, for that is what the enemy will teach them to mean if we are not careful, but the bear that I can pull to pieces if I like. At the other end of the scale, we have taught men to say, my God, in a sense not really very different from my boots, meaning the God on whom I have a claim for my distinguished services and whom I exploit from the pulpit, the God I have done a corner in. And all the time the joke is that the word mine in its fully possessive sense cannot be uttered by a human being about anything. In the long run, either our father or the enemy will say mine of each thing that exists, and especially of each man. They will find out in the end, never fear, to whom their time, their souls, and their bodies really belong. Certainly not to them. Whatever happens. Our love is cheap. Our love is cheap. We focus on what we think is ours. Not the love of Jesus. His love is eternally costly. His love is eternally costly. Now you, you ask, Richard, okay, I, I, maybe I've picked that up from other passages, but how do you see that here? I mean, he, he touches people and they're healed and he speaks and people are fed. Where's the cost? How hard is that? He's God. Right, but think with me. These are all signs. Remember we talked about that earlier? These are all signs of his kingdom. A kingdom into which to bring us, to make us citizens with all the rights and privileges thereof, he had to lay himself down. He had to give himself up. Paul, in imploring a group of Gentile churches in the course of his second and third missionary journeys, imploring them to give towards famine relief, predominantly Jewish churches back in Judea. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 said this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. My friends, if you are a follower of Jesus this morning, you are not a beggar on the street. You may be living as though you were a pauper, but you are not. You are an adopted child of the King of Heaven with all rights to everything in His realm.
you have no need to hold anything back. Given all that he has done for us, first I will say, how could we? And secondly, given all that he has given us, why would we? Why would we? We are rich. Eternally so. There is so much more to the love of Christ than we know. We need to let that reality shape our love for those around us. Now I know this, this is... We need examples. We need patterns here. In addition just to the enabling power, we need examples, tracks in which to run, if you, if you will. We have countless around us today and in our past. You all know these words. I'm not going to sing them. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Is that just dramatic, over-the-top hyperbole? Not according to the author. John Newton. John Newton, born in 1725. His mother nurtured him in the faith until her untimely death when he was seven years old. By the time young little John was 11, he found himself out on sailing voyages with his father, a merchant marine. John settled into a, a career out on the sea. Sadly, his career was typified by mm, undiscipline and desertion, both in the merchant marines as well as in the Royal Navy. Eventually, through different circumstances, he finds himself mixed up in the slave trade. I don't mean that in a passive sense. I mean actively participating. Let's just be honest. And eventually becoming the captain of a slave ship, and more than one. In the course of events, however, in 1747, in the midst of a storm that he was sure was going to sink that ship, he gave his life to Jesus, or at least partly so. And you know, these things take time. Well, I mean, seriously, they do. I mean, it took years before he really understood. He's a man, right? We're all people, men and women of our time. Our, our ancestors will look... Our, no, our descendants. Our ancestors don't look back. Our descendants will look back and, and wonder, how could you be so blind? Newton was a man of his time. It took years before he recognized the evil wickedness of the trade that he was involved in. But he left it in 1755 and began to spend time wrestling with what am I here for? Examining his life, giving his gifts, which were many, that had been perverted and used for all the wrong reasons and ways for years, but giving them over to his Lord and Savior. In time, he studied for the ministry, became a pastor, 1764, loving for years, decades, the people of his parishes, preaching, counseling, uh, composing beautiful hymns, um, co-writing with William Cooper in the only hymn book, um, writing books, letters, tracts, and get this, mentoring untold number of young pastors and key figures, this former slave trader, key figures in the British abolitionist movement, including a certain William Wilberforce 
who never really would have been William Wilberforce without John Newton. This was a conversion. This is a transformation of this um, wide, free, costly love. The, the point being that to experience that love is to give oneself and your life to expressing it. Now how that will look is as different as the individuals in this room and beyond. It's the same love, it'll have, it's the same power, the same driving influence and transformational influence, but it, how it expresses it, because we're all called the man different posts. But it's still inflaming, beautiful, heart-changing, wide, free, costly love of Jesus. There is so much more to that love than we know. We need to let it expand our own love of one another. Can you pray with me? Lord, this is, on the one hand, so very comforting, for we, all of us in this room, need this love ourselves. And it is so very challenging because everyone around us needs it from us too. And we know, again if we're honest, we simply cannot muster this up. We ask humbly, fervently, that you would impress these realities upon our hearts. Both parts of this, the comfort and the challenge in equal measure. We confess that our experience, we start talking about love, love of others, no matter who they are and how hard they may be to love, our experience is jaded. And our expectations, we confess, are low. But so is our view of you. The fact that you could take us and love others through us in these ways is as stunning as the miracles we read of here themselves. It's just something otherworldly. Would you do it? Expand our love. We pray in your name. Amen.